I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Welcome to my show, America Can We Talk? Today we're going to talk about the Obama-Biden-Ukraine quagmire, the $75 billion Medicaid fraud, the Democrat debate lowlights, can't call them highlights, uh, Elizabeth Warren's killer tax and health plan, and it's a great title, and finally, is this impeachment unpatriotic? And finally, of course, I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. America Can We Talk is sponsored by GC Works, a Dallas-based company performing advanced technology research in the oil and gas industry. And hello again and welcome to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. On today's First Five, I want to dedicate just this short first segment to an irrelevant topic related to the impeachment. We're not gonna talk about the impeachment and every last witness in detail, but I wanna bring some really important perspective to it in this first five today. There was a brilliant piece online. It was written by John Solomon. And if you don't know that name, he's a former investigative reporter with The Hill. He now has his own website, which I think is just johnsolomon.com. But he wrote out online something, I urge you to go to our website and read the whole thing. My website, americachemitalk.org, on the homepage, under shows, drop down to list of links, and this will be in there. It is called the Ukraine Scandal Timeline Democrats and Their Media Allies Don't Want America to See. It could not be more important in terms of having Americans understand that what is happening in Washington as the House is digging in, trying to find a basis to impeach President Trump over nothing over a phone call between him and Zelensky and other related aspects of their relationship as uh, president of America to president of Ukraine. What is coming to the fore is actually an astonishing level of connectivity and corruption beginning during the Obama administration, apparently seemingly with the knowledge of President Obama, certainly with the direct ongoing involvement of Vice President Joe Biden, now presidential candidate Joe Biden, especially involving his son, Hunter Biden, who sat on the board of Burisma. This timeline I mentioned that John Solomon wrote describes in detail the corruption inside the Ukraine and that corruption involving the company Burisma, which is basically an energy company in the Ukraine, which hired Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, for the ridiculous amount of $50,000 a month. Some people say, no, it was more like 80,000. Whatever it was, he was being paid to sit on the board of Burisma, and he had absolutely no knowledge about the energy industry or about Ukraine. He was there because of his last name, which is just a tiny piece of the corruption I'm talking about. And I'm gonna to get to the final point in just a minute because I don't wanna to spend too much on this today, but the final point of why it is so important, in fact, correct and right, even if President Trump had decided to withhold every nickel of aid to the Ukraine in order to demand that they get to the bottom of corruption, 
it would have been a president carrying out his duty as president of our country. In other words, it is absurd to suggest that it is not in America's interest or somehow contrary to America's interest to have our president insisting on the corruption inside the Ukraine involving American officials be investigated and concluding and, and come to a conclusion. But very specifically, okay, so back to when Joe Biden, the current presidential candidate, was vice president under President Obama, February 2014, he was appointed by Obama. So Obama appoints Biden as his U.S. point man, point man on the Ukrainian crisis because they had they were having protests that led to the ouster of their of their then president uh, Yanukovych. So this is in February 2014. Also in February 2014, George Soros, Open Society Foundation, published an anti-corruption strategy. So Soros is claiming he's trying to work on anti-corruption, forms an anti-corruption strategy in the Ukraine, and identifies the Anti-Corruption Action Center, which is a nonprofit Soros Foundation and the State Department. So gotta get this again straight. Soros Foundation and your tax dollars under the Obama administration, the Obama State Department, is funding the Anti-Corruption Action Center, which Soros is claiming is to try to fight corruption. The real purpose, as we went through just a couple of days ago on this show, Soros' mission in this group, the Anti-Corruption Action Center, and many others in countries around the world, is to foment unrest, to place his... his uh, lieutenants in various positions in these countries foment unrest, foment anger of the existing administration, bring about protests, ultimately topple the government of that, that country and to put in place the government he wants, which he Soros wants, which is left-wing government, socialist tending, deferential to the world plan, deferential to socialism, intolerant of religion, intolerant of freedom seekers, intolerant of the idea of free markets. This is Soros' mission. This is what he was doing, and the State Department is helping him do it moving forward. So that is February 2014. They had new elections in March of that year. Uh, Poroshenko emerges as the likely leader. He eventually wins that. So in April of 2014, Devin Archer, another name you've been hearing this Ukrainian crisis, Devin Archer, a business partner of Hunter Biden's, a business partner, partner of Hunter Biden, and dad Joe Biden is still vice president. Devin Archer becomes, uh, is named as an independent director of the Ukrainian gas company, Burisma Holdings, along with Devin Archer, so he's Hunter Biden's big buddy. He's also, and the other person appointed to become an independent director of Burisma is Christopher Hines. Christopher Hines, the stepson of Secretary of State John Kerry. And John Kerry was Secretary of State at that time. So he's got the Secretary of State and the Vice, and the Vice President's son's big buddy getting on the board as independent directors, not on the board, becoming independent directors of the Ukrainian uh, of, of Burisma. And after this time, you start to see payments made. Burisma Holdings making two payments to the Morgan Stanley account of Devin Archer and Hunter Biden's firm called Rosemont Seneca Boha. So... Shortly after Devin Archer gets on the board of Burisma, payments are made to the uh, firm Rosemont Seneca, which is basically the, a Morgan Stanley account for, uh, that is owned by Devin Archer and Hunter Biden's firm Rosemont Seneca. So they're starting to get money out of Burisma already, and we're only back in uh, April 2014. Uh, then you finally have... Um, 
you get uh, Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, actually announced as a board member of the of this Burisma in May of 2014. So they're all getting involved in the Ukraine. Folks, I could read this. This is a, whatever this is, nine or 10 page document. I'm not gonna read it all out loud to you. I swear, but you should read it every word. Understand the level of just interlaced, uh, woven spiderweb connection between Obama administration, Biden, Hunter Biden, and corrupt Ukrainian officials. It goes on and on and on and on. I'm going to mention just so anyway. So fast forwarding, you know, Poroshenko wins the election. You recall the tape we played in the show before, where uh, the Ukrainian government is investigating Burisma because they can tell they're corrupt. And Joe Biden, as vice president, as he bragged on a tape two years later, but Joe Biden, still serving as vice president, goes over to the Ukraine in 2016 and basically says, I'm withholding a billion dollars of aid unless you fire this prosecutor who is investigating Burisma, which is the company that Hunter Biden, along with his friend Devin Archer, have been making millions on for doing nothing for knowing nothing. And you just, I can't urge you strongly enough to read this uh, timeline because it'll help you recognize, help you just really get a grasp on the facts that show that what is coming to the fore in Washington instead of wrongdoing by Trump as to Ukraine is the unbelievable corruption inside the Ukraine involving the Bidens, uh, both of them, father and son. And so I, I want to just, one more point about uh, this timeline. There was testimony in the Hill today, testimony, I think it was today, Fiona Hill testified in the House impeachment hearing, and she was saying that there is no basis for the argument. Fiona Hill is trying to argue there's no basis for the argument that the Ukrainians interfered in the um, 2016 election. She's just saying, you know, that's ridiculous. That didn't happen. This is just, you're just making this up. She's trying to direct traffic, direct attention back to Trump and uh, the Ukraine and trying to steer Congress away from focusing on the Democrats. Uh, don't want to hear it, but the Republicans do. Uh, what involvement there was in Ukrainian corruption in getting in the middle of the 2016 election. But but Fiona Hill, um, she basically um, testified that there was no such thing as corruption. It's just a, uh, a Republican you know, talking point, a Republican distraction. So I just tell you two, three quick little points. Beside the fact that we already have evidence of, and it was not disputed, it was reported in Politico, a left-wing site, meetings in Washington between the Hillary Clinton team, the DNC, and Ukrainian officials during the 2016 election. You also had, uh, during the 2016 election, um, you had the, um, Oh, I want to tell you about George Kent in a minute, but hold on, I can do that yet. I want to tell you one thing here. Um, a DNC contractor, May of 2016, DNC contractor Alexander Chalupa wrote an email to her bosses at the Democrat Party headquarters detailing her work to get dirt on Trump and Manafort from the Ukraine. So the Democrats are using their operative to get dirt on Trump during the 2016 elections. This is now a document we have available, Chalupa's report to the Democrat party. Um, we also have the uh, Ukraine ambassador in Washington, Valerie, um, C-H-A-L-Y, I'll just say Chaley, Valerie Chaley, the, U, uh, the uh, ambassador to the U.S. from the Ukraine, in Washington, taking the extraordinary step of writing an op-ed in the Hill, intervening in the presidential election, slamming Trump's policies and comments on Russia. So Ukraines are actually writing 
opinion pieces, Ukrainian bash opinion pieces fighting against Trump. You had cooperation uh, and, in fact, uh, instigation by the uh, Ukrainian government in giving information to the FBI about Manafort, stirring up the suspicion of Manafort, the Trump uh, campaign guy who was at that time the head of the, the um, chairman of the campaign, I believe. Um, and that, just so you understand, even the Ukrainians agree that their people were interfering in the American election. The Ukrainian officials, they actually had a ruling December of 2018. A Ukrainian court ruled that efforts by the Ukrainian parliamentary member Sergei Lyshenko and NABU, which is the anti-corruption thing, NABU chief Artem Sintak to publicize the Manafort Black Ledger documents in 2016 were an improper foreign intervention in the American presidential election conviction, criminal conviction in a court in the Ukraine of these two characters in the Ukraine government interfering with the American election. The final piece for today, before I tell you why this matters so much in this ongoing impeachment proceeding is, uh, oh, another delicious fact to tell you in a moment, but also, so today, uh, we talked about yesterday how the um, Ukrainian government had announced they are, they are drawing up an indictment against the owner of Burisma, who, by the way, is uh, MIA, missing in action, they can't find him. Interesting fact. But anyway, Burisma founder, an individual guy, Minister Nikolai Zloshevsky, um, they are going after him and, and accusing him of corruption, the corruption that he was engaged in that involved money, laundering money through Burisma, getting money to Hunter Biden and other Westerners, other officials. So Ukrainians are back into looking into this after having dropped it because of the arm twisting engaged in by Joe Biden against Ukrainian governments. Ukraine is looking into this. They're going after the this guy um, who's missing in action, and they specifically point um, to Hunter Biden and others as having been recipients of this laundered, funneled money. But the thing today, the new story today was the actual members of parliament, members of the Ukraine parliament, like our Congress, their parliament, have demanded the presence of the U. They, members of parliament, are demanding that the presence of the Ukraine and the United States, Zelensky and, and Trump, investigate the suspicions of the legalization or the, you know, the legal basis for the $7.4 billion by the family of ex-president Viktor Yanukovych through the American Investment Fund, Franklin Templeton Investments, which has ties to the Democrat Party. To be specific, the son of Templeton's founder, John Templeton, one of President Obama's major campaign donors. The Ukraine parliament is saying, you better investigate this money going to Templeton, which is connected to the Obama administration and um, a major campaign donor. Another fund-related character, the Templeton Fund, Thomas Donilon, managing director of BlackRock Investment Institute, shareholder, Franklin Templeton Investments, which has the largest share in the fund, it is noteworthy that this guy, Thomas Donilon, was previously Obama's national security advisor. So, in summary, in this first five, understand the Democrats' involvement in the Ukraine during the Obama administration, involving Obama, his donors, his advisors, the and and the uh, Bidens 
father and son in the Ukraine is what's coming out during this impeachment hearing. And if, the, if President Trump does get impeached by the House and goes to the Senate, every detail must be forced out of all these witnesses. Uh, one last quick thing on this. Um, you know, a lot of people are trying to, uh, we t played yesterday a little clip by President Trump uh, when he was leaving the White House and he was saying essentially, you know, Sondland, who is the U.S. ambassador to the EU, Sondland testified I asked President Trump, what do you want from the Ukraine? And Trump said, nothing, nothing, nothing. And so Trump is saying, I told him, I don't want anything. Well, the left is trying to say that Sondland really did implicate President Trump in wrongdoing. So I want to make something clear. All that Ambassador Sondland said was that he surmised, he assumed, he made a guess that some uh, withholding or delay of some American funding to Ukraine was probably tied to President Trump's desire to insist that the Ukrainians look into the corruption. When pressed, he has no idea. No one said it to him. He didn't read it. He didn't get that instruction. No one said that to him. So he, they're arguing, the left is arguing, to impeach a president over the surmising by some ambassador. But the final point, wrapping up this first five, is this. If you begin to wade in to the swamp of the relations between the U.S. under Obama and the Ukrainian government, we, the Americans, should be cooperating at every level to help the Ukrainians get to the bottom of the corruption. This is why, by the way, President Zelensky won the election, why he is the president of the Ukraine today. He won like by 72 or 73 percent of the vote because the people wanted an end to the corruption. This is why they're now looking into corruption again, because the people did not like it that their previous government surrendered to the leftists of the world, Obama and Biden, and dropped the prosecution, drop the investigation, and Zelensky's coming on board and say, no, we're actually going to look into this. Final little point is two things. We have to look in to this. We have to be cooperating. Even if there was a, you know, a, a smoking gun evidence, a memo written by President Trump that said, we're not giving Ukrainians a dime until they look into this, that does not constitute an impeachable offense. When you know the facts, Trump was not you know, looking under every rock like Mueller was, like the Democrats have been doing. He's not sniffing around trying to find something. The evidence is there. Hundreds of people close to him and close to the administration understand what happened. People who pay attention understand what happened. To insist on ferreting out wrongdoing you already know is there and saying until that happens, we may consider holding back our money, our aid to the Ukraine, cannot possibly be considered an impeachable offense. We'd be crazy not to look into it. Now, one last final thing, which is, it's kind of an amazing thing. The Democrat Party is pretty much broke. This, uh, they announced this kind of in the middle of the hearing yesterday. They are seven, the Democrat National Committee is seven million dollars in debt. Republican fundraising is breaking records. And for the first time, Republicans are actually getting donations from people who haven't donated in decades, people who didn't have to be asked to donate, people calling the RNC and saying, I'm so outraged by what the Democrats are doing to this country in this impeachment hearing that Republican funds are up. I don't have the number in front of me, but uh, I do have it in this pile. But anyway, Republicans are raising money. Democrats are in debt. 
Republicans are not in debt because the American people are seeing right through this effort of impeachment. They understand it for the political, ugly takedown it is, and they don't want to enable the Democrats in any way to win this battle. And that, my friends, is today's first five. Okay, maybe longer than five. I want to hit a very brief story today on Medicare fraud because it ties into what I want to talk about on, from the Democrat debate last night and from Elizabeth Warren's health care plan. In Medicaid, I'm sorry, I think I said Medicare a moment ago, Medicaid. In Medicaid, in this last year, we had a 75, B as in boy, billion, $75 billion cost of improper payments from the Medicaid program. I want you to let that, that number sink in. I mean, sometimes I feel like we hear all these big numbers out of Washington and programs cost millions and billions and trillions and all oh, it's just numbers. The Medicaid program expanded greatly under the Obama era because he was pushing states to expand Medicaid. It was part of the Obamacare deals, expand Medicaid. So pushing, pushing states to expand Medicaid, which tra has translated into expanding fraud and corruption. And so here are the quick details of that. There's a big Wall Street Journal article about it, but 70, there were $75 billion of improper payments made by the Medicaid program, which accounts for 20% of the total program tab. It's more money than we spend on the entire food stamps, or now they call it SNAP program. Fraud alone costs America, in the Medicaid program, costs America more than the entire food stamp program. And the point is, when we get involved in expanding government and we're pushing, the, the left is forever pushing the growth of government, the control and power of government, we think it's gonna be somehow just, you know, government involved. But what happened is, unfortunately, this is a, uh, this is when we have Medicaid, it's not just really public programs. We think of them as public, but they actually involve private players, private providers, private hospitals. And so one writer is calling it our system of venture socialism. He's saying even being worse than single payer because it combines socialism, which is, you know, government gathers all the money and just and redistributes it in various programs. Uh, with some of the motives of capitalism because government shields the private entities from market forces. Bottom line is we expanded Medicaid. We have massive increase in Medicaid fraud. 20% of Medicaid spending went to fraudulent payments. And this is the case when any government program grows because unlike a private employer, or private entity where the only money you have is money you earn, you bring in because you earn it, and you watch your bottom line, and you watch your expenditures, because at the end of the day, if you run out of money, no one's gonna bail you out. Well, that's not true when you're involved in government programs, because the government keeps providing money, keeps providing money, you're incentivized to provide services that cost money, that bring more money to you, because you're not even thinking, if you're a Medicaid provider, you're not even thinking about the bottom line. You're thinking about maximizing the care you can offer that will bring more money to you under the government programs. Now, I understand people providing Medicaid care often lament that they could be more earning more in the private sector. True or not, Medicaid gets built, and to the Amer which is the American taxpayer getting built. So a few other quick numbers out of this. Um, yeah, I'm not going to go there. Is that um, all of the uh, Obamacare, you know, costs that made we people lamented that the Obamacare system increased costs so much? 84% of all the Obamacare costs, 84% of all coverage increases under Obamacare were from Medicaid. 
Now remember, Medicaid was created to provide care to the poor, single women and children. It was not supposed to be a substitute for a private health care system, but it's grown and grown and grown, as programs always will, as long as the government funds and funds and funds, which they can only do if they tax and tax and tax and tax. It is a, you know, the connect these dots argument. Connect these dots. If you're gonna promise big programs, like the left does, you're gonna push Medicaid expansion, you're gonna bring people in who otherwise might have found a way to provide for their own care through an, a variety of sources where you can seek care only as you need it, uh, small insurance policies, local clinics, but instead people sign up for a program that's free and then connect these dots, you, you entice people to sign up. The federal government's pushing people to sign up so care providers are going to be paid less per patient, so they're going to want to have more visits, more ways to bilk the system each time. And so the costs go up to the country, and the government's going to keep on covering those costs. And then, because the government has to cover those costs, they raise your taxes. This may seem, may seem like Economics 101, but all this promising of free services, free care, all it really means is hardworking Americans are gonna have their taxes raised in programs that never have sufficient accountability and very few players in the programs have any incentive to provide that accountability. With that Medicaid story in the backdrop, I'm gonna turn and talk about the Democrat debates from last night. Okay, to be perfectly honest, I didn't watch them. I watched highlights. I wanna make just a few comments though. And keep in mind, these you know people you're watching on the stage, Assuming Hillary doesn't get in, which I think she might, I'm, I'm going to go with, I think it's better than 50-50 shot. Hillary Clinton will get in the race in 2020 because she looks at the parade of characters in the stage last night for the Democrat debate, and she thinks she's better than all of them. She thinks she would have a more serious uh, likely chance of winning than any of them. But here we are. We have those candidates on stage. The first point I wanted to make, like three or four points about the debates last night. One was how determined the um, questioners were to go with questions that were uh, enticing the candidates, these Democratic presidential candidates, to go uh, anti-Trump, pro-impeachment, just, just a very, uh, these were not serious questions. These are, can you please find a way to get President Trump? So I have, actually I meant to check with the wonderful Matt. Were you able to get that clip of questions uh, that was um, off of the, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So this is an article from American Thinker, but it's about the way, uh, you'll see who it is in a moment, was asking questions. Here she is, the first clip. You have said already that you've seen enough to convict the president and remove him from office. Will you try to convince your Republican colleagues in the Senate to vote the same way? How central should the president's conduct uncovered by the impeachment inquiry be to a Democratic nominee's campaign? How central would it be to yours? After the bombshell testimony of Ambassador Sondland today, has that view changed for you? How central should the president's conduct uncovered by this impeachment inquiry be to any Democratic nominee's campaign for president? How central would it be to yours? Okay. This is Rachel Maddow, clearly recognized her. She's the you know, queen bee of MSNBC. She's the, and she could not contain her disdain for President Trump. And I thought several of the candidates looked kind of like, do we have to go there? Can't we talk about policy? Because the Democrat Party's realizing, at least the smart ones, impeachment is not playing in Peoria. Peoria. People do not like it. They can see, and, and you even heard Rachel Maddow's question, well, given the bombshell testimony by Sondland, which was, again, people. Sondland said 
No one ever told him that Trump tied aid to the Ukraine to getting Ukraine's uh, agreement to investigate Burisma or Biden. In fact, several people said that we didn't even, when we were talking to Zelensky, we didn't even talk about Biden. We just talked about Burisma, which is the core thing, the core issue for the Ukrainians. It's their, their, in their country, it's a company run by one of their people that was engaged in this unbelievable um, you know, corruption scandal. In any case, so you have Rachel Maddow spending all her time trying to stir the Democrats up. Uh, but the next thing was very, very interesting. Um, there was a, um, you know, we have, I'm going to hit in the next segment just Elizabeth Warren because she is, you know, she's circling at the top. You know, she's, she's among the top people. It is, um, it is Elizabeth Warren. Um, it is uh, Buttigieg is amazingly, uh, doing well, uh, Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. So I guess I want, I have a bunch of clips I want to play. I guess I'll just do the Joe Biden one next because kind of because I, I play so few of his gaffes. I play so few of them, but this was kind of comical in the Democrat debate last night. Here is Joe Biden. So I have more people supporting me in the black community that announced for me because they know me. They know who I am. Three former chairs of the Black Caucus, the only African-American woman that ever been elected to the United States Senate. A whole range of people. No, My point no, is, OK, kind of comical. He's on stage giving his little uh, you know soliloquy about how black america is really really supporting him they love me and he had the support and he did say the only black woman ever elected to the u.s senate as he's standing on the same stage with kamala harris who's not backing him um but anyway he said i meant only but that, that okay that's a little bit of amusement but biden continues to flounder and sound unsure of himself and stumble and the Democrats aren't too excited about uh, his presence in the race, I don't think. But on a more serious note, um, there is an ad that Elizabeth Warren is playing. This was a theme I want to get to in a more serious discussion about the Democrat debate. Elizabeth Warren has a new ad out very stridently pushing for punishing the wealthy via taxes. And I want to play, if we can, this is her her campaign ad. Uh, I believe it's already out, at least it's accessible online. So here it is. It is time for a wealth tax in America. I've heard that there are some billionaires who don't support this plan. The vilification of billionaires makes no sense to me. It's bull. She would ruin what we have. She probably thinks more of cataclysmic change to the economic system as opposed to tinkering. Well, I'm most scared by Elizabeth Warren. So here's the deal. You built a great fortune, good for you, I guarantee. You built it at least in part using workers all of us help pay to educate. Getting your goods to market on roads and bridges all of us help pay to build. We're Americans, we want to make these investments. All we're saying is when you make it big, pitch in two cents so everybody else gets a chance to make it. I'm Elizabeth Warren and I approve this message. I gotta tell you folks, this is a conscious decision by this woman, Elizabeth Warren, to basically say, I'm gonna get right out there and I'm gonna be the leader in attacking the wealthy. I'm going to be the leader in class warfare. I'm gonna be the leader stirring up 
Americans, ignorant Americans, people who don't understand how the economic system works, who don't understand the virtues of free markets, I'm going to stir them up into anger. She's kind of the angry socialist vote she's trying to get in her corner. She is trying to instill hatred and suspicion and envy of the wealthy. And this is a very interesting thing. I want to talk about that a minute, and then I want to turn to what Cory Booker had to say, because briefly, Briefly, he sounded sane, like maybe a Republican, but then he quick got over it. But on Elizabeth Warren, she is wading into the world of saying, you know, and we're going to talk about her health care proposal next, but she's wading into the world of saying that essentially the purpose of the federal government in, in America, in this free market economy, in America founded on the freedom of the individual, you know, the, the example to the world of the prosperity and success possible flowing from freedom flowing from free markets she is selling a central point of socialism that the purpose of the government is to redistribute wealth the purpose of the government is when you saw the little laundry list you had there at the end if we tax the wealthy we can if we if we tax billionaires more and we can you know pay for free health care for everybody free college for everybody uh, universal preschool she has a whole list of we can get rid of all college debt she's got this insane and I actually mean the word insane utopian notion that somehow everything that costs money is available to be given away by her and other radical government control freaks on the American left if they will just let her pass laws that essentially okay the seizing of private wealth of people that she is vilifying as too successful, as having too much money. And this, she is entirely, entirely determined to sell this as kindness as caring don't you see how i care about the american people this is why i am doing this because i care about the american people and i think if the american people can just see all that we could be paying for if we just we just get the and then she always she uses these expressions she had it over and over and over and over in the debate you know come on throw in an extra two cents you know you billionaires throw in an extra two cents throw in an extra you know five cents she just has she talks about it like it's like you know if somebody who's a billionaire is being asked to give a nickel or a dime and then she castigates obviously her ad picks out some billionaires who are kind of concerned about her mission so number one she is completely committed to openly she is saying I'm a socialist she's trying to say I'm not but when you say the purpose of taxation is the redistrib redistribution of wealth that's the purpose of government's taxing power you're a socialist you don't get to say you're not you just don't get to. Second point, there are several Democrat researchers out there who've been looking back at previous elections and at midterm elections and at congressional elections, you know, elections of people to Congress from all over this country. And they have come up with an analysis of the impact on the elections when candidates like Elizabeth Warren go so far left, go so far. I mean, Bernie's a socialist. We all know it. He's proud of it. And, you know, he's got the Socialists of America behind him. Elizabeth Warren is really no better. She's just a, a touch savvier in not calling herself a socialist. But these analysts have been researching and reporting and trying to help the Democrat Party understand that, number one, when you go so far left, 
to stir up the angry socialist base that got so excited about the victory of President Obama and are so excited about Bernie Sanders. When you play into that radical leftist base, which is not on the American playing field, not part of the American dream, not part of the American plan, you actually alienate many Democrat voters they need to win the general election. So these, these you know, gurus who are themselves Democrats are doing research, and I link to something on our website, americacanwetalk.org, you can go read the article, americacanwetalk.org, on homepage, under shows, drop down, list of links. Really thoughtful writing about what happens when Democrats go so far left. They, they may appeal to the radical base, but they lose the, the mainstream Democrats, and even more so, they embolden, in fact, they bring about the victory of Republicans. So a lot of people worried about her because she's making headway. You know, she's, she's definitely in the top three or four in all the polls there are, but there's a, um, a particular thing that she raised, uh, and, and actually, let me do one last thing. On the debate, last segment, one last thing, that we had a little clip of Cory Booker, who, as I said, briefly, uh, gave um, voice to a reasonable idea, but then he went off the, the rails. So if we have Corey, but last thing in the debate last night, Corey Booker, if we have him, the very wonderful Matt, the producer. We as Democrats need to fight for a just taxation system. But as I travel around the country, we Democrats also have to talk about how to grow wealth as well. When I stood in church recently and asked folks in a black church, how many people here want to be entrepreneurs, half the church raised their hands. If we as a country don't start, if we have a party, don't start talking not just about how to tax wealth, but how to give more people opportunities to create wealth, to grow businesses, to have their American dream. Because yeah, we need to raise the minimum wage to a living wage, $15 an hour. But the people in communities I frequent, they're not aspiration for their lives, is not just to have those fair wages. They want to have an economy that provides not just equalities in wealth, but they want to have equalities of opportunity. And that's what our party has to be about as well. Okay, as I say, Cory Booker briefly sounding saying there, he is recognizing that the Democrats are sitting up in that stage, standing on that stage, and all they're doing is arguing with each other about who's going to raise the taxes higher on the wealthy, who's going to tax the hardworking people, who's going to raise, you know, I'm the one, I'll take everyone's money away, vote for me, I'll take all those people's money away, they won't have a dollar left to spend. I mean, this is, Cory Booker's realizing this is not playing in mainstream America, it's not even playing, as he's saying, in visiting a black church. This idea of the purpose of government is just to take away money from the rich and give it to other people doesn't even play in a black church. Instead, he said these people want to hear about and be re-energized about the idea of entrepreneurism, of building their own wealth, of becoming what it is, part of the American dream. So Cory Booker said that, so, you know, saying to that point, but then he goes on to, and his little list, to be clear what he's running on, because he's trying to say Elizabeth Warren is too extreme, but he's running on uh, penalizing uh, wealth in different ways. He wants to increase the tax on capital gains. Well, if anybody knows, you know, that has been a true killer of innovation invest, and, and, and reinvestment and growth of business, which creates jobs and puts food on the table for families in America. The increase in the capital gains tax is a killer in the economy 
and a killer, especially for the most successful people among us who are not going to continue investing if that's what they're going to do to them. Second is he wants an increase in the death taxes, an extremely unpopular position. You know, the uh, the death taxes, you know, the inheritance tax, what you get to pass on to your children uh, when you pass on. And this idea, what he's arguing about is saying, yeah, let's just take more and throw their money away. Very unpopular idea. Every time it's pulled, people do not like this. He's also talking about the federal $15 minimum wage. Again, as you talked about many times on the show, the minimum wage increase is a job killer, especially for the people who need jobs the most, the unskilled, the people just beginning their participation in the labor force, the people who need those entry-level jobs, who truly aren't contributing much value to the company, but they're learning job skills like show up in time, punch in, do what your boss says, work hard, you know, don't leave to the end of your shift, these basic things. The minimum wage increase always ends up hurting the poor the most. And it ends up hurting the people in, especially cities and areas who implement these programs. Because what happens when they increase minimum wage is that the next tier of employees above the minimum wage earner says, well, wait a minute. If those guys are now getting 15, well, that's more than I get, or that's just what I get. Then I get 20. So all the wages inside a company have to keep going up to keep parity, to keep fairness with, because the uh, lower, the, the new entry level workers are now making a higher wage than they used to. So the company, not being made of money, ends up having to increase the cost of the good or service they produce. So the increase in cost happens, and then all the people who have all that new money in their hands from the increase in wages find that everything they wanna buy costs more. This is this is reality. This is like gravity. It's just truth. You can't change it. And I actually think that a guy like Cory Booker probably knows this. But this is another example of pandering, pandering to the uh, people who are struggling, people who just want to hear, somehow you're going to help me. So Cory Booker is really no better in terms of harming the wealthy than is Elizabeth Warren, even though, because he was kind of getting on her case about her wealth tax thing, but he, really he's just getting increased taxes in different ways than Elizabeth Warren would have. I want to talk specifically for just a moment about Elizabeth Warren's health care plan, her killer, I called her killer tax and health care plan. And I actually kind of mean killer. To start with, she proposed Medicare for all. She put out a plan, literally meaning everybody would have to get their health care from the government. You could also call this socialized medicine. That was her original idea. People started to point out, you know, you, you really can't afford to pay for this. It's really, really, really expensive. You cannot afford to pay for it. And that's when she got into, well, we're going to have a wealth tax. We're just going to take away the money from the wealthy people. That'll solve it. We'll have a big old wealth, wealth tax. That's what her ad is about, the wealth tax. But again, as in gravity is always a rule, many rules of economics are always a rule. There's a finite amount of money available. And I want to just explain something that Elizabeth Warren isn't going to tell you. If the American government seized all of the wealth of all of the billionaires, B as in boy billionaires, on the entire planet Earth, that money could not pay for more than three years of Medicare for all in America. You have to grasp this. 
There just isn't this money existing in some utopian cloud somewhere that's waiting to be seized and brought into the federal uh, you know, treasury and spent on Medicare for all. It isn't there. So because she, Elizabeth Warren, was criticized so much, she said, well, okay, I'm going to go with the option of you know, uh, Medicare option for all, meaning anyone can choose to stay in private health care, pursue private insurance or private care, or they can choose government funded, which is taxpayer funded Medicare for all. So she said, I'll, I'll make an option for them. Two things about that. Number one, what she actually said was she would go with a Medicare option for all only for the first two years of her presidency. And then the second two years, she was going to get rid of this you know, option business and just force Medicare for all on everyone. Second point, she never is able or willing to address the reality that there isn't enough money to do this. And this is the danger of someone like Elizabeth Warren because she sounds intelligent. She sounds reasonable. She puts out, I have a plan for that, plan for that, I have a plan for everything. And she is not dealing with reality. She truly is not dealing with reality. Other impact we'll have to get to another day because I want to hit one quick story and then it'll be time to wrap up. But she also never acknowledges that in order to get to Medicare for all, there is inevitably, without any question, going to be, be rationing. There isn't enough money to pay for Medicare for all. This is why the National Healthcare Service in England, the famous socialized medicine, you know, that we supposedly think is so great. I don't think it's great, but the Democrats are always bragging about the, the British system. The British system, one of the major trust funds participating in the British healthcare system, announced about like three or four weeks ago that they are no longer going to provide service for anyone who engages in racial or sexual um, discrimination, gestures, use of words. They are basically saying, we're gonna size you up, and if you don't fit the left-wing worldview, and if you say something we don't like, or you say something we determine is offensive, or sexist, or racist, we're not gonna provide you care. Now, you could say, well, that never happened in America. What will happen in America, if we actually get subjected to what Elizabeth Warren wants to do, there will be, in one way or another, rationing because there isn't enough money you will start to hear about a child not worthy of care because they have too much of a disability when they're born a senior citizen not eligible for care because after all he or she's already x number of years old you know we got to save our money in the system for the young people so we can't be um, you know we can't be spending money on these old people you will have rationing one way or another because there just isn't enough we're gonna have to talk more about that healthcare thing uh, the last very very quick story um it's just a kind of a, a wrap-up for the show, too, is about this idea of misplaced patriotism. Patriotism in America is the idea of loyalty to the ideas that founded America. Loyalty to the ideas in the Declaration of Independence of we all have rights from God simply because we were born. We have the right to life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. Loyal, patriotism in America is loyalty to the Declaration, to the Constitution, to the ideas that formed America. Patriotism does not require any individual, or to be genuinely patriotic, it doesn't require you to agree with every decision or statement by elected officials. 
it does not require you to agree even with the positions taken by the party that you prefer or by the candidate or the political party or the side of the aisle. Patriotism is upholding the ideas of our Constitution. In this impeachment in Washington, what you're really seeing, and this is a great tying of all of our points of the show uh, today together, what you're seeing in the impeachment is the American left out of their minds because Donald Trump won the election in 2016 and is actually carrying forward the mission he ran on to restore America's place in the world, to restore freedom in America, to limit the broad behemoth of the bureaucracy in Washington that's strangling regulation, issues strangling regulation, strangling business, slowing our economy down, standing up for the place of America in the world, demanding that we have fair and reasonable trade agreements, refusing to surrender America's sovereignty to the United Nations and a globalist mindset. And in the Constitution, there was a reason that our founders said that foreign policy belongs in the hands of the president. He's the leader. He sets foreign policy. If people don't like his foreign policy, then they have to work to elect a different leader next time or to put public opinion pieces out trying to sway the president. But the battle you're seeing in Congress and this impeachment is in very real terms the battle to restore the idea of the Constitution that the president is the commander in chief and he decides. The deep state, the, and we've seen it now in the FBI and the DOJ, where they tried to bring down President Trump through a false accusation of Trump-Russia collusion, putting the nation through the, the you know, weeks and, uh, I mean, years of the Mueller investigation into nothing. We've seen it now with the State Department thinking and the witnesses up on, uh, in that Congress testifying. They're basically saying, I'm really mad because President Trump didn't do the policy I thought he should have and I thought he probably meant and I made this inference. This is a battle over restoring the Constitution, the patriotism, the patriotic thing, whether you love President Trump, hate President Trump, do or don't agree with him on any policy, to hold on to the Constitution, to be patriotic, it means to insist that the foreign policy power resides in the present. Many people on the left have been recognizing that what they're doing, the left is now using the term coup. They were using it. The lawyer for the whistleblower used it right after President Trump won election, that the coup starts now. And you have people on the left willingly, openly, talking about the idea that President Trump cannot be allowed to carry his policies forward, cannot be permitted. So this, we have acknowledgement now, people on the left, that there is a deep state that was mocked for a long time. Now people say, hey, actually, the crime is a deep state. And they do think they run the place. They do think they're in charge. This is a battle to restore the Constitution. And the patriotic duty is not to defend your political party, somebody else's party, your president, it is to defend the Constitution and the only logical place where the Constitution placed the power to decide foreign policy is with the presidency. And that's really one of the main things at stake in Washington. There is kind of a, there is a world sweep, a, a world movement of restoration of the rights of the people, the rights of freedom. That is what's happening inside Iran, trying to overthrow the mullahs because the people want freedom. It's happening in Hong Kong because the people want freedom. They don't want the repressive communism. 
and in the Ukraine, the people stood up and voted for a government. They wanted to have their freedom back. They wanted an uncorrupt government. They wanted to fight corruption. And you had, really, in the Ukraine, a battle of the leftists in America and the leftists in the Ukraine kind of covering all this junk up. And you have on the right the idea of freedom and standing up for what's honest and fair. You have Trump demanding that the Ukrainians or in, wanting the Ukrainians to get to the truth of what happened. This is a battle over are we going to honor the people of the Ukraine who elected Zelensky to expose corruption, to bring prosecution, to convict, or are we going to go with the leftist cabal mindset in Obama, the State Department, and the, his counterparts in the Ukraine back in his era that kind of want to keep the people repressed and keep control? It's a big battle, folks, and we have to come down the right side. I'm out of time. I can't, I can't finish this point, but I want to... I need to turn because my show is almost over. I want to turn to why the stories we talked about today matter to you. So to start today, and we have Ukraine, Obama, Biden, Quagmire. You got to read that piece. Impeachment scam is exposing the scope of the Obama-Biden corruption in the Ukraine. Hunter Biden, not Don Jr., was fleecing Ukraine. Joe Biden was protecting Burisma and Hunter from Ukrainian investigators. His Hunter being his son. Obama, not Trump, denied weapons to the Ukraine. All this Trump-Russia collusion. Trump armed the Ukrainians to protect them from the Ru- so they could protect themselves from the Russians. And the deep state went right along with Obama and they're outraged at Trump. It would be negligent for the U.S. not to investigate. Go to AmericaCanWeTalk.org. Read the Ukraine Timeline article. You will love it. Okay, on the $75 billion Medicaid fraud. Just the fraud portion of Medicaid exceeds the cost of the entire food stamp program. Fraud results from dysfunctional cross-incentives in a program engineered by Big Health. Common sense should forever guide Americans away from big government programs for addressing health care. The government doesn't administer anything efficiently except the military. The American way provide for those truly mentally or physically unable to care for themselves, require all have skin in the game, stop claiming health care can or should be free, but most of all, so far as humanly possible, Keep control of the health care in the hands of the people and providers, not government. On the Democrat debate of the lowlights of the debate, moderators were cheerleading for impeachment and free stuff. The attempt to paint hard leftism as moderate. I mean, this is what they're trying to say. Well, Sanders is left wing, but everybody else is pretty moderate. They're all leftists, folks. Truly think through what America would look like if any of these leftists actually got power 2020 will be a stark choice, maybe as stark as ever presented to the American people. It's freedom and strength and sovereignty or big government control, weakness and globalism. American patriots must turn out in 2020 as never before. And on Warren's Warren's killer tax and health plan, she has politics of envy and they're dangerous and they're ignorant. Blame the billionaires appeals to the American people as ignorant masses. She stokes class envy and it's financially silly. Confiscation of all billionaires' wealth wouldn't pay for three years of Warren's Medicare for All and what's left after the government takes everything. Yeah, and what happens after that? I and mean, all these programs she's going to pay for. What happens when they've taken all the money? Then what are they going to fund these programs that they, they're not, to use their word they love, sustainable? Warren backed off of Medicare for All only when people pointed out it's unaffordable and only for the first two years of her presidency. Medicare option for all is equally destructive of our health care system. Government has control over costs and will outcompete the private sector. We'll talk about that another day. This, this why this option thing is really a disaster also. 
And is this impeachment unpatriotic? We have to start calling it unpatriotic. Cut through the noise. The issue is, is the president elected by the people in charge of the executive branch or are the deep staters not elected by the people in charge of the executive branch? Struggle to resist impeachment is the struggle to reclaim constitutional order. Americans know it, but does the House and Senate also know that? And that, my friends, is America Can We Talk for today. Thank you so much for listening. Check out our website, americacanwetalk.org. Follow me on Twitter at Debbie Can We Talk. Please like this page on Facebook. Subscribe on YouTube. Email me at americacanwetalk at gmail.com. And most of all, tune in every Monday through Thursday, 3 p.m. Central Time, where I always talk truth about America because America matters. Talk to you next time. Can we talk truth about America? Can